Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. Say, what would you say about in this market? Obviously, with rates being eight, maybe eight and a half if you have yeah. an investment property. So in this market, it's yeah. tough. Yeah. Um, because a lot of um, cap rates, right? That's how we, we measure what type of ROI we'll get right. from the investment property. You have to find a diamond in the rough, mm. right? In every marketplace, this is the time to get a really, really good deal mm. because there may not be as much competition. Right. Um, your ability to go in and and, and lock in a great price is so critical, mm. right? So you get a good price today, and then next year when rates come down, or in two years when rates come down, sure. guess what? Now you're ahead of the game, right? But you have to make sure that the property that you're looking to buy today it breaks even. Right, it still has to make sense. It still has to make you sense. You don't want to right? gamble it too much. Right. Too much right. rates are going to come down because we, we right. can't control that, right? That's right. So the, the advice that I would say if you're first time doing it, look at um, Zillow, look at the multiple listing services, look at homes that have been on the marketplace for 365 days. Mm. That's going to give you two critical data points, right? Number one, either it's overpriced mm. or number two, you know, the, the, um, the seller um, is just not that motivated. Hey guys, welcome to episode 54 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. I'm an Oregon and Washington realtor, and I'm a multifamily and short-term rental investor. Hey everyone, I'm your co-host Jordan Lee, and I'm a mortgage lender based in Portland, Oregon, and licensed in about 10 states. And I invest in single family, and um, we're starting to look into investing in commercial as well. Yeah. And we're filming this episode from the lovely city of Chicago. Yeah, we're here for Aria National. Uh, it's been a great event. We get a uh, hobnob with all of our peers in real estate and lending. Uh, it's been really great. And Jordan, who did we have the pleasure of having on today? Oh man, we, we had a super great interview today with um, one of the top members in ARIA, a younger guy named Ace, who tells his story about um, you know starting from, starting from the bottom in banking, building his way up, starting investing in real estate, investing in in, in, in restaurants, restaurants and, commercial, oh my yeah, god, he's done so much. And finally a bank. So if, if you're interested in entrepreneurship, if you're interested in investing, if you're interested in building a good mindset and building a good company, uh, this is the episode for you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 54 of the Realized Games podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. I'm your co-host here, Jordan Lee, and we're actually in Chicago. Yep. And we're super excited to have Ace on the podcast. Uh, Good friend of mine, he he was actually one of the first guys that I met in Aria that like got me totally inspired and wanted to get me, I, I was like, okay, after I met Ace, it's over, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in this organization. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey, do you wanna just give us like a quick, you know, background about your story and yeah. you know, kind of how you, how you built up? Uh, definitely, definitely. Well, thanks for having me, Jordan, Steven, thank you so much. Um, you know, a pleasure, a privilege to be here. And uh, we are in Chicago um, for the National um, RA Conference. But, 
Uh, how did I get started? Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Just tell us your whole life story in 30 <laughs> well, seconds or less. In 30 seconds no, or less. You, you, you have so, an immigrant story too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, have two immigrant parents. Um, I was born and raised in Queens, New York. My mom and my dad uh, both came from Thailand. My mom is uh, Taiwanese descent and my dad is from Thailand. So I'm mm. half Taiwanese, half Thai. I uh, grew up in Woodside, New York ever since um, I was... Uh, I was born there, so really where my entrepreneur spirit came from was I saw my mom and my dad have three jobs each. Mm. Uh, so they came, the typical sort of immigrant story, they came with a hundred bucks in their pocket. Jeez. And I saw my mom work three jobs, my dad worked three jobs, and you know, I was very um, exposed to the entrepreneurial life at a very young age. By the time I was seven or eight, my dad would be taking me around to the different uh, job sites that he had, mm. right? So I saw him do, uh, he was working at a coffee stand and he was doing the carts on the street, uh, the street vendors. Oh, and really? then he worked at JR Tobacco. So I saw that at, at a very young age. Uh, my mom would um, have us just wait for her until she had to close down the store. So we, we definitely grew up a little bit different than your typical mm. sort of story um, in terms of uh, just having that adolescent life. But it really taught me, I saw the ups and downs of my parents' journey, mm. right? And, you know, what really um, resonated with me was when my dad, you know, he has an engineering background from mm. Thailand. Mm. And um, he was actually one of the maintenance um, guys at, at, uh, for a big developer. Okay. And one day he, he brought me around on a Saturday and he's fixing, I guess, the pipes and things of that nature. Mm. And then a gentleman, an older gentleman came in. Um, dressed really nice, and um, he was saying hello to everyone. You know, my dad's like inside the trenches, <laughs> like fixing the pipes. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm, I'm with him for the for three hours already. And then here comes well dressed older gentleman, and he's just collecting envelopes. Mm. And I'm like, Dad, who's that guy? Right? <laughs> this guy's a developer. Or... So he was the landlord. Oh, he's the landlord. So okay. I'm like, Dad, you know, that's that's who he should be. He's, he's, he's clean. He's not dirty. Um, and then my dad's like, Son, you know, like that's the landlord. He owns the building. And I'm like, How do we become him? And my dad was like, Well, we don't have any money. But he's like, If you do um, want to be him one day, then you have to learn how to borrow money from the bank because mm. that's the only way that we can. And that's how I fell into the mortgage business. Mm. So I, I, I fell into the mortgage business not because I wanted to become a loan officer, but because I wanted to find a way to actually um, one day own my own portfolio right, and become right. a developer myself, right? So that's how I got into Citibank and things of that nature. So very early yeah. on, you knew you wanted to go into lending, which is really interesting because like I didn't even know, a lot most of us, of us don't in, know what a loan into, officer yeah. is when we're yeah. younger, but you were like, okay, I want to I want to work for a bank, I want to lend people money so I can learn how to get that's money. That's right, that's okay. right. So it was a means to, to an end to, to achieve my goal, right? Mm -hmm. And through the process, you know, my first um, condo was when I was 22. Wow. Um, my my first year, um, you know, I made, I made probably 40K that year. I you see, started working at a bank right out of college. I started working at Citibank right out of college. And where did you Where did you go to school again? I went to UConn. <laughs> yeah. Tell that story. <laughs> so um, I was the first Asian American uh, to walk on uh, to UConn playing basketball, uh, not ping pong. <laughs> you know, you know, five nine. So a lot of a lot of folks were like, "We're the water boy or the towel boy." And so I was, uh, you know, thankful and lucky enough to have an opportunity to try out. Um, you know, there's scholarship players and there's walk-on players. Mm. I was a walk-on, so what that means quickly is you're not a scholarship player, but they have open tryouts yeah. for everybody that, that attends the school. So a couple of the guys, they saw me play in a rec league. 
and like ace wow you know you should try out you, you have a little bit of game right oh, some so, of the, so, so some of the players on the current the players, team were like hey now the story is my freshman sophomore year i got cut my junior year i still kept at it and i finally made it my junior mm. year so it's just a lot of perseverance yeah um of course you know when you look at myself um you don't you, you don't see a basketball player right so i tell everybody you know that really gave me the confidence to really um, view life differently. That if you put your mind to it and you put enough dedication and commitment, anything can happen. How many, so when you get cut, how many hours a day were you like shooting, dribbling? Oh, like <laughs> so look, look, tryouts, it's a four month process. Right. Wow. You, so you make it out of 360 kids and basically you're what? on what's called the great team. 360 so 360, 360 kids try out. Oh, I had no okay. idea. And then in the next three months, you're on the great team. Okay. And the great team, there's 10 players that they pick from that 360. Then you're on, and, and then from the three months, then they cut it down to five. And then from five, they cut it down to two. Wow. And then you get the jersey. <laughs> so, I mean, the process in between me getting cut and me um, going on the team, there, there are certain life events that actually catapult or, or shape who you are as a person. Right. And at that time, uh, I don't really share this with a lot of people, but the ones that are close to me, they know my parents were getting a divorce. Mm. And basketball was always an outlet for me mm. as a younger, yep. um, you know, uh, as an adolescent, right? So my parents got divorced my freshman year. Okay. I got cut my freshman year. And I thought during that time that if I made the team, that somehow my parents would be together mm. and I could bring them mm. and then they can share in this sort of achievement together, right, right. right? But I channeled all of my energy towards basketball. Mm. If it wasn't for basketball, I'd probably not be where I am today because uh, that was like my, my safe space, yeah. if that made any sense. So that was a, a driving motivation for me. And I just practiced and I put on, on a piece of paper and I put it, and I still have it today, it's, uh, it's framed, heart over talent. Because mm. I knew there were so many guys better than me in right. terms of talent, right? Because of physicality. Better, taller, faster. McDonald's, all yeah. Americans coming from all across the country, right? right? These are scholarship players. We just won the championship right. yeah, the year before I made yep. a team. So this is the number one collegiate team in the country. In the country, yeah. Right, so, you know, I knew I had to out, you know, outperform, out hustle, you know, work on my craft, work on my shots. Every open shot I had, you know, I had to be 99%. Right. So I'm in the gym literally five, six hour days in the weight room, you know, getting my weight up. And, you know, thank the Lord, my junior year, you know, um, it was a blessing. I made the team, and through that, that was the beginning of a lot of life lessons, mm. um, being a, uh, a player for Coach Calhoun. He mm. taught me things on and off the court that I bring today to my everyday work life, um, you know, at the companies that, that, that I'm creating now. Well, and I feel like you brought the basketball world into your business too. I mean, don't, I did. didn't you work with a lot of players and um, yeah. ex-players and, and coaches? I was part of the NBA um, crossover program. Okay. And what that mean, uh, what that meant was any players that are interested in having a career in real estate or banking, um, I was part of this program that they created. So every and, and, summer. And these guys are coming in as like investors or how, what's their all shapes okay all all, all different um sort of uh, goals right okay. so they're coming in as an investor they're coming in possibly becoming a realtor so they're oh, interested interesting. in actually cool. learning on everything that has to do with real estate whether it's financing whether it's um being an agent purchasing um investing it was all in one so this is like when they're out of their career transitioning. No, this is actually wow oh, interesting. Yeah. okay so then your network just 
Because what happens <laughs> is um, the NBA had a really bad uh, reputation uh, back then of having agents take advantage of their players. Yeah. So they put this program together. So if you were interested in tech, you would go to Google. Okay. So they put this program uh, together to allow the players to actually apply themselves and have real life experiences with companies mm. and CEOs to really understand the business themselves instead of just depend on the agents to invest their money. Okay. Which that is a great sense. program. Super, super great. And that yeah. catapulted my network to the NBA and I did a lot of things with the players because I had that rapport because I was a former player. Yeah. That trust factor. Yeah, I mean, huge. when you play for UConn, it's in yeah. instant. In and instant not to mention rapport, Karan yeah. Butler, Ben Gordon, oh, yeah. Ameka Okafor. They were all my teammates. <laughs> They're all your teammates. And, oh, they all, yeah. and they all went to the NBA, right? <laughs> Yeah. So. What is it? What, what and what is it like? You know, being in the same gym as those guys, playing with them. Is it just? Oh man! Is it crazy competitive every day? Or crazy is it competitive mixture? Yeah. Um, what coach taught us is you're, you are this, your weakest link. You're as strong as your weakest link. Mm. Meaning, if one person was late to practice, that person's not running suicides. The whole team is running suicides, mm. right? And um, one of the things that he taught us was discipline. We would wake up at 4 a.m. on a Saturday, when the campus is dark pitch dark and you and you see students walking back to their dorm rooms. Right. Oh yeah. That's yeah. tough running yeah. Cemetery Hill, right? So we had a hill called Cemetery Hill and we'd be running um, up and down sprints at four AM. Jesus. Right. So he taught us and that, that's just your workout and then, that's you, just then you still workout. have like six hours of practice or whatever. And then you have three hours of practice in the morning, mm. you go to class and then you have practice again at, uh, in the afternoon. So it's it's a full time job, right? So a lot of people look at basketball as it's a fun recreational sport it was it was actually a job at UConn plus you had to keep up your grades it's and not not yeah, like yeah. it's an easy as a walk-on I had to yeah. keep up my grades right? I was gonna ask like what were you studying at UConn I feel like we, did, we never found yeah. out yeah so I studied finance yeah um that's what that's how I got into and then um basically at the time we had a professor that would travel with us um while we went to uh, different places to play games mm -hmm. so Ted uh was his name Professor Ted and and I would be sitting with him because you know, I was a finance major, had to pass. Mm. I knew I wasn't going to the NBA, the right. next level. And I knew I had to get good grades, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, interesting. And so after after college, you're you're now in the banking world. You started investing immediately. What what was the first thing that you turned towards when you were looking at investing? You know, I didn't have a lot. Um, so I made 40K the first year. Um, I was still living at home. Um, paying for a lot of the expenses, and um, I saved maybe like 15k. Mm. So I applied the 15k to a condo that yeah. was uh, w that was a hundred thousand dollars. And where where was it? It's in Flushing. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, they so, had. So there was back back then. Back then, that was 2003. Okay. 2004. Okay. It's been a while. Yeah, I've been yeah. in the industry for 20, <laughs> for 21 years. I mean, you now. got started really young. Which yeah, is I got so started weird really really young. Age, yeah. yeah. So in Flushing, there were um, condos that were going for about a hundred um, and 50k. Okay. Um, so the first one that I bought, I was looking at a hundred thousand dollar um, condo, but I bought a hundred fifty k condo. I put ten percent down. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, they allowed us to put ten percent down, and uh, that was my first property. It was a rental property, cash flow just barely paid for the mortgage, mm -hmm. um, paid for the taxes and insurance, and from there, um, I started building upon that. So two three years later, um, the the equity shot up a little bit, refinanced, bought another one. Right. And I remember you telling me one time that you specifically targeted condos. 
I did. Um, talk about that strategy, because I know a lot of people are like, I don't want to touch anything yeah. with an HOA because the high interest rates and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the numbers have to make sense, right? So if you find a condo that's cheap enough, and in today's marketplace, you probably can't find a condo that's that cheap, I would probably go into a co-op. Mm. Um, and that would be my strategy, because in a one-family home, you know, I realized that you're responsible for the water bills. You have to come in and you have to fix and maintain the home whenever yeah. there was a problem. And with a condo or a co-op association, you know, that's that's built into your homeowners association. Right. I didn't have to come in and fix the toilet. I didn't have to come in and fix some of the pl plumbing. You mm -hmm. know, I would call the HOA and they would do it for me. Mm -hmm. nice. That's the reason why I decided I wanted to create my portfolio by buying condos, mm -hmm. right? In today's marketplace, there's a lot of co-ops out there that actually allow investment properties now. You right. might have to live there the first year, two years, but okay. after that you can actually uh, rent out. But you know, for me, honestly, if uh, if I'm talking to the audience now and, and you're comparing whether you should buy a one family or co-op or condo, it really depends. If you're a handy, if, if you feel that you're handy and you can you know, roll up your sleeves, go in, fix the plumbing, learn that trait, you know, owning a one family, two family is, is definitely, um, uh, the route to go as well, right? It really depends, but the key is to start. The key is mm. you don't need large amounts of money, right? There's the three and a half percent FHA that you can put down. Fannie just came out with um, putting as little as five percent down uh, for on a two-family on multifamily, yeah, multi yeah, right? Yeah. So, so there's 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 a lot of opportunity right now in yeah. this marketplace. If you're an investor, you don't need to save up a lot. You just have to do your due diligence, work with you guys, uh, make <laughs> sure that find, partner, find, find, good find good partners, yeah. right? Work with you guys to, to calculate the real estate, calculate the, um, the monthly payments on a mortgage, and just make sure that the numbers make sense and right. you have enough reserves in case something does happen as a landlord. You have that wherewithal to kind of go in and, and, and create the maintenance. Um, I was gonna say, what would you say about in this market, obviously with rates being eight, maybe eight and a half, if you have yeah. an investment property, like how do you? So in this market, it's tough. Yeah. Um, because a lot of um, cap rates, right? That's how we, we measure what type of ROI we'll get right. from the investment property. You have to find a diamond in the rough, mm. right? In every marketplace, this is the time to get a really, really good deal mm. because there may not be as much competition. Right. Um, your ability to go in and, and and lock in a great price is so critical, mm. right? So you get a good price today, and then next year when rates come down, or in two years when rates come down, sure. guess what? Now you're ahead of the game. Right. But you have to make sure that the property that you're looking to buy today, it breaks even. Right. It still has to make sense. It still has to make you sense. You don't want right? to gamble it too much. Right. Too much. That's right. Rates are going to come down because we, we right. can't control that, right? That's right. So the the advice that I would say if you're a first home, if you're a first investor. First, home, first time doing it, look at um, Zillow, look at the multiple listing services, w whatever you have tools on the internet to do, look at homes that have been on the marketplace for 365 days. Mm. That's going to give you um, two, two, um, two critical data points, right? Number one, either it's overpriced, mm. or number two, you know, the, the, um, the seller um, is just not that motivated, right? But those are the type of things that you should be looking at because nine out of 10 times, if you're going for a listing that just got listed, they're gonna test out the market. Right. Yeah. If you go for a listing that's been on the market now for a year, that, that seller might be in a situation where he must sell. Mm. That's gonna allow you to actually go in there and just give a crazy offer. Right. So if they, he's asking for, let's say a million, you could say 700. It's right. been on the market now for how long, right? So your realtor or your um, partner, your real estate partner can find you homes that have been in the market for six months or more 
nine out of 10 times, you have a really good chance at negotiating a really good price. Makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, and so you were building your condo portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, how many did you have within a couple years? Within a couple years, um, I and it took me a, a long time. It didn't take me, you know, it, it wasn't like I bought one one condo then bought another condo. So yeah. it took me three to four years to accumulate about four condos. Mm -hmm. Then from four four condos, I flipped it to, to two families. You you sold them and traded I sold them and then traded to the okay. 1031 exchange. Got into something bigger, and then from the um, from the uh, two family homes, I traded into commercial. Okay. And that's how I got into the restaurant business. I as see. Well. Okay. Uh, so you got into commercial pretty quickly. <clears throat> um, what was it like trading up to when you traded up to commercial? Did you just know that you want to do that from a numbers perspective, no. or did you have someone advise you, or did yeah. you just the right deal come up? No, or? it's it's a great question. Residential and commercial is two totally different things, right? Yeah. right? So the bank underwrites you on on a multifamily on still how much you're making right along with the subject uh rental properties right. you take 75 percent of that yeah. um rental income right on a commercial um side of financing they don't look at your profile at all right they look at the property itself mm -hmm. oh so you you selected commercial because of the easier rental. easier to finance easier to finance and because i had my own businesses i controlled the rent roll right Right, so a lot of times I would go into oh, properties because you were the tenant. Because I was a tenant, I was a principal tenant. Yeah. Right. So a lot of times I would go into properties that um, didn't was vacant, and if you go into a property that's vacant, most people can't borrow money against it because there's no rental income coming. Right. So I was able to get a really really good deal mm. on the on the on the. Um, did you do some of the SBA loans then? I did. As well? I okay. did. So the SBA loans allows you to borrow ninety percent. Right. And you wow. put ten percent down. Yeah. So you know your stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little bit. A little so, bit. Yeah. So no, I did. I've never done one of those. So I did an SBA loan. Like a great program. Yeah. And um, it allowed me to put 10% only. I was a principal um, owner on it, meaning I would put my own property. But the key to why I, f I focused on vacant buildings was that if a building is vacant, their value is not there. Right. Yeah. They're not able to because the value of a commercial property is really based on your rent roll. Right. Yeah, the income. The income. So if you have no income, guess what? <laughs> your building's not worth a lot, right. right? But they think that it's worth this much, but you can negotiate. And what was, did you have to have some track record before a bank was like, are, um, we, are we just like, well, here's how the restaurant no, is my because business as, plan? As long as you have enough down payment okay. to put down commercial, you have to put down at least 25%. Uh, right, right. So I saved enough. I, I sold enough to put at least 25%. Okay. Okay. And then because I was going to be a tenant operator, they looked at my business income. And so you had already bit, been running a restaurant for and a And I've already been time. running okay. a restaurant. Oh, so you were basically a tenant somewhere else. You didn't own the building right. and you were just, you had a That's proven right. business plan with your, your restaurant. With right? the restaurant. And do you want to kind of talk about the restaurant a little bit? What restaurant business was so tough. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I mean, so tough, Jordan, right? So um, there was a time. Um, my my parents opened up a Thai restaurant when okay. I was in high school and it failed. It closed down. Which happens to about Which happens 90, 90, to about 90 of percent right? of the restaurants, right? Yeah. They say if you don't make it in the first three years, uh, chances are you're gonna fail. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a very uh, it's a low margin business and a high failure uh, business. But if you're able to make it past the three years, you should be able to do okay. So um, our our beginning experiences with Spot Dessert Bar, that was our first concept that we launched in Obao, which is a Thai Vietnamese concept. Mm. Um, I was redlining about, I would say, 20000 a month in the restaurant business. So all the money that I was making from the bank 
and what my cousin was making, we were just feeding just it into, in, it. into the um, into the restaurant. For how long? So we did that for a year. <laughs> so not only did I spend four hundred thousand on the on the um, on the business, I had to pay another two hundred forty thousand right. negative, right? Yeah. So it was a six hundred forty thousand cost, and then this. Second restaurant we opened up, we put a million in, and we were negative thirty thousand. So it put me in the hole um, for a long time, yeah. right? And I, through that though, I realized that you know creating a concept wasn't good enough. It's actually, you know, what's your, which what's your features and benefits, right? Who are you competing with? Is mm -hmm. your price point the right the right price point, and are, are you in the right location? Right. Right. And and honestly. You know, for me, the reason why I feel that I've been able to be as successful as I am today is because I've gotten so many life lessons. Right. You know, I was lucky enough to fail. And honestly, for everyone that's listening to this podcast, um, don't be afraid to jump in. You know, my story, you know, when you look from the outside, you only see the end result of all the restaurants we have and the banks. But the failures are the, are the things that I want to talk about because right. the failures are the things that teach me now when I'm playing for high stakes on what not to do. Mm. But if I just thought about a business plan and I just <clears throat> thought about being ready, you know, you're never ready to be an entrepreneur. You really don't. No. There's, there's, there's not any blueprint or any classic that they, that they can teach you to be able to foresee some of the things that actually happen to us, right? So the best thing to do is when you have a vision, just jump right into it. You're gonna learn so much about the business, but more importantly, about yourself. Right when you jump into that business, right? So look, not everybody's gonna have the money to withstand all the losses, but we were lucky enough that I was doing well at the bank and we were able to subsidize some of the losses. So, I mean, during that time, you were losing this much money and you just still felt very confident about your concept, even though, like, how did you think you were gonna change, flip, like flip that script? Over? You know, that's a great question. Uh, we were a month away from shutting down the store. This and was during the pandemic? This was during the, th this was right before the pandemic. Oh, right before pandemic, okay. And, um, you were, but you were getting regular customers and reviews. Or? We were, we were in the basement. Okay. So a lot of folks didn't see where the restaurant was. Okay. So and it was more of just a volume, like it's like it just a hard time getting people. A hard time to recognize us. We didn't have a brand. People There's weren't no brand recognition. into the brand yet. People weren't into the brand yet, and then, um, but we had Obel. We had a restaurant. Right. And one day, uh, Chef Ian, who was uh, Chef Kitty Chai, he actually had uh, one of the top Thai restaurants in Manhattan. Okay. He came in, he was a partner of ours at Ember Room at the time. We had a, um, another restaurant mm -hmm. and he was making desserts and he gave us a tasting for the desserts. And I'm like, holy shoot, Chef Ian, you're really good at desserts. Yeah. Do you wanna come and help us at a spot? We're failing miserably. Okay. Right? You gotta come, you gotta help us. So he did and then lo and behold, you know, in life, it's not about, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a book that I read and it, and it talks about three feet from gold, mm. you know? And what that book taught me was a lot of people, uh, they tend to fight, but they don't fight hard enough that they walk away right when they're about mm. to hit the pot of gold. Just yeah. one, a couple more feet. Just maybe. a couple more feet, <laughs> right? So basically they were digging, digging, digging down and they just gave up. But if they dug three inches to the left, yeah. And three inches to the right, they would have found the goal. Right. The moral of the story is we were just about to quit. And lo and behold, at least Lauren Glastonbury from Ch Channel 7 uh, Eyewitness News came into our store. Just like randomly? Randomly. Or you guys, you guys tried our dessert. Yeah, she just tried our dessert and up. loved it. Did she right? bring in her camera crew or is this just randomly? She was just hungry. She brought Channel 7. Okay. It was live. 
Um, wow. And this is when the New York City taxis were about to launch their TVs in the mm. back. So I'm at Bank of America at the time, and I get a call from one of my managers, and she was like, Ace, you got to come to the restaurant right now. Something's going on. There's a line around the block. Oh. I'm like, that's definitely not our. That's definitely not our story. <laughs> you're calling the wrong restaurant. You're calling order. the wrong restaurant order. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and you know, I still remember the call. I'm like, they they must be lining up for something else. And she's like, no, Ace, they're lining up for our desserts. Nice. She's like, get over here right now. So I go over there. I realize we're on um, Channel Seven News, taxi stands, and that's when we were failing for almost like two, three years. Just that one, just uh, one, one person, moment. that one moment yeah, in time, yeah. just got on changed the, yeah, the, yeah. the the dynamic and the trajectory of our business. And from there, it gave us the ability now that we had revenue coming in, the ability to shift our focus and our resources to Shafian <coughs> and now start branding mm. the business, right? And it just snowballed, and now we became a staple. We became a destination, right? But it was just because we were able. It, it, if we just closed down the stores the first three years, we would have never even been open long enough to even have that opportunity. And that's a lot of times what people tend to do, which is they're not, they don't have that enough fight in them to just fight a little bit longer, fight a little bit more. And look, there's opportunity costs. That's true. That's so true. Mm. And you have to really think, you know, are you going to be bleeding? Do you have the wherewithal to do so? But if you can, sometimes people give up on their ideas and, and um, goals because there's obstacles. Mm-hmm. But I think having obstacles should be the fun, you know, in that in that sort of journey, right? And having devil's advocate and having people question your your ideologies and your processes are good. Mm. You want that feedback. But what most people feel is that they feel discouraged. They feel beaten up. They feel like their idea sucks. Right. And what I want people to know, especially on this podcast, is that when you have your failures, when you have people criticizing your product, it's great. Embrace mm. it. But really go back with your team to figure out solutions. Because the harder the entry-level barrier is to your product, the better it's going to be once you can overcome it, right? If it's an easy entry-level barrier, then anyone can come and compete. Right. Yep. So you have to think about, okay, man, my, my product... There's so many issues with it, but maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Criticism is super important, and it's like I remember in the when we used to cook in fine dining, it was like we so rarely get any criticism, and then when people get criticism, they get all pissed off, and I'm mm-hmm. like, what are you about? like, there's one opportunity in in the last sixty days that we've had to like you know improve your process. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's a good use of that. Yeah. Um, so now, you, so you've got restaurants, you've got the commercial portfolio, and you're like, well, this isn't enough for me. Now I want to <laughs> now I want to open a bank. How did that? <laughs> um, so, so, so one thing I want to talk to people about that is that, you know, you don't want to be when people talk to me. They're like, Ace, you do you have the real estate, you have the bank, you have the restaurants. Um, people need to know I had one line of income, one stream of income that I was really, really good at was the bank. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have the bank, the restaurants would fail. Once you had that baseline, but, you were like, oh, you I have can take any risk I baseline. want because I've got this coming That's in. right. Yeah. That's right. And what a lot of people fail to realize is that they want to be jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. You know, their passion here, their passion there. But if you don't have one stream of income and one strong stream of income, you can't, you can't become an entrepreneur in other segments. And that's where a lot of people fail because once they see a little bit of success here, but it's not truly successful, mm-hmm. they jump onto the next project, the right. next project, and then they don't have enough 
um, they're not grounded. They're, they don't have a center. Right. Right. If you look at Mark Cuban, like he's got his center. If yeah. you look at Grant Cardone, his center is real estate. Right. But they'll invest in other things. Right. right? So that's what I'm talking about. Right. So um, I guess I guess my the thing the, the, the one thing that I, I want to encourage our listeners to think about is yes, you can explore other avenues, but you have to have a good team behind mm-hmm. you as well. Right. Right. Um, ideas are abundance. Everybody has an amazing idea. The reasons why ideas fail is you don't have enough good people to execute on your ideas. Mm. You're a one man show. Right. And I wouldn't be able to open up my own bank or explore other opportunities if I didn't have good people taking care of the business that I have today. Right, right. Yeah, I assume you're not in the back making desserts, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all, not at all, not at all. Um, And that's why having critical partners, giving them equity, um, having a um, transparent P&L where everybody is aligned and on the same page. You know, at the bank, for me to start the bank, I needed to give equity away. And for my leadership team that have started with me um, at Ground Zero, equity is given. Mm. So I'm not taking the line share of the equity, right? At the end of the day, I want to leave myself with 50%. The other 50%, I'm giving it up. Mm. And I think that's where... That's kind of what you do with all your restaurants. That's what I do with all my restaurants, all my real estate. Well, the real estate, I own 100% of that. There are certain um, partners that I partner up with on real estate. But in order for you to have an abundance mindset, you have to be able to have... Um, a very uh, um, selfless mindset as well. Right. You know, I tell people all the time, the sum of of nothing is so nothing. Yeah, that's true. So if you own a hundred percent of nothing, right, it's nothing, right? Yep. yep. But if you own fifty percent of something that's larger, right, you're going to be able to scale and expand infinitely more, right? Yeah. And remember, you're one person. Can you be in a million places and own a hundred percent of everything? No. No. But human nature is, I want to own ninety. Yeah, I want to own a hundred, and that's why it's, they're like, "Damn, it's so hard for me to grow from here to there." Right. Because you own everything. Yep. But if you just give it out yep. and you share in that, and you share in the vision, and you're leading the way, you can have some amazing leaders in here. And you may not make a hundred, you may make sixty, you may make seventy, but you're able to grow. And you're adding value to them. They 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 have ownership in the business. They they are more motivated to do their job. To you're grow teaching the them the business, yeah. right? You're teaching them about the financials. You're teaching them about payroll, food costs, even at the bank. You know, they're in the war room with me. They're building the company with me, and they have equity. Yeah, I always felt like that was why I got out of the cooking industry, because there was no verticality. There's no reason to keep working there, because you're on a salary. Yeah, you're on a salary. You stop learning eventually. But what if I told you, you know what, Jordan, you're doing such an amazing job. I'm going to give you 25% ability to to, to make bonus and apply that bonus into equity, and I'll give you up to 25%. Huge motivation. You would say, you would say all day long, let yeah. me help you save costs. Plus, I don't have to save money to buy my own restaurant. Like, <laughs> so, you, so you don't need to, yeah. and, and that's, that's something that I explained to, to our employees, right? I'm paying um, for the risk. Yeah. Your, you help me retain 15% EBITDA, which is the margin that I want. Mm-hmm. Anything above 15%. You'll get 25% of that. Mm. You can apply the 25% towards buying in, or you can have 25% sweat equity. But the minute you leave, then that equity stays with the restaurant. Mm. But if you stay, you get it. Right, right. right. Now, a lot of folks will say, you know what? Well, I'm going to take that 25% equity that I just received and the bonuses, and I'm going to buy into it so I can be a real owner. Right. And that's how you build right. true leadership.
right? And now you're organically growing with your team. So now everyone at Spot wants to own a piece of it. Yeah. Everyone at the bank now, I'm giving away equity to loan officers. Oh, really? To, 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 to key leadership folks. Right. Everybody's going to get pre-IPO shares. Right. Yeah. But the loan officers that want to come and build mm. and really grow, I'm giving them sweat equity as well. Right. And cool. that's that's how you grow an amazing company and culture. And right? I'm sure you have a vesting schedule, so they're encouraged to stay for what four years? Roughly? Four years. Yep, you got yeah. it. I worked, I worked <laughs> in tech. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's I, the vesting period and yeah, all that, right? Was, was so, so look, it's 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 all and and I and I took a lot of it from the tech um, tech world um, tech world yeah. you know, and startups. Yeah. Right, because that's what it's all about. Right. No, so. it, it definitely gets the people engaged. Obviously, everybody every everybody wants to work at the next. You know, Twitter, Twitter that's going to blow up, or mm-hmm. Facebook, and I, Google, you know, I have friends and all who that. did that. They don't want to start their own company, but they want to have ownership and they want that big IPO moment. That's right. So it that's gets right. them working those nights and sleeping in yeah. their sleeping bags in the office. And, and rightfully so, right? If, if we're able to IPO, just like the bank, I have a plan in seven years to IPO. And if we IPO, I want everyone that was involved to become millionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That should be the goal, right? Yep. It shouldn't be like, no, I don't want him to grow with us, right? right. You want people to grow with you. And I think that's the mindset that people need to shift towards. Got it. I, I mean, we'd love to keep talking to you all days, but I know we've got a compressed <laughs> schedule here. But before we Before we finish up though, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, you know, if someone was thinking about investing for their first time or yeah. thinking about becoming an <clears throat> entrepreneur, um, what would what would you kind of give, just advise? I think um, numbers, 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 right? If you're a first time um, investor, make sure that you're sitting with someone, a, a a banker, mm. a loan officer mm. that actually is not there to give you rates and products, but right. someone to actually analyze and break down the analysis of the cash flow mm. and the reserves mm. and the commissions that you'd be paying on a real estate transaction. Right. right? Once you have your numbers set, now you're <clears> going and you're at the numbers are, are just as important as taking dive in. Yeah. A lot of people, it's either the numbers or the hesitation because you're scared. Right. Right. But once you have numbers, numbers never lie. And if you have really good numbers, you don't even need to look at the uh, at the property. To be honest, in real estate, you really don't. That's why there's so many people that's buying property in Kansas a lot, like like all different types. Nashville right now, Detroit. As long as the numbers make sense. Right. And you're not buying emotionally, and that's the number one thing that I would tell people that are looking to go into investing. The properties that you're buying for investment are not going to be, are not going to be the properties that you live in, and a lot of people they tend to buy stuff that they 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 try, tend to picture themselves living in, right. and the ones that are going to give you the income and the ones that need the rehab are the ones that you probably will never want to live in <laughs> at any point of your in yeah. a given time in the beginning at least, right? Yeah. And then you can move into more luxury properties and things of that nature, but the beginning ones. It's gonna probably be the ones that you don't want to live in, but as long as the oh. numbers make sense, <laughs> take the dive, put in and save, and, you, and there are opportunities for you to put five percent down. Those are the type of properties that you, you don't want to be emotionally invested, but you just want to make sure the numbers make sense. I mean, it's a learning opportunity too when you get a challenging property. I've, I, a lot of properties too, you have to buy sight unseen because there's tenants in, inside. You can't even inspect That's the right. unit until you get into contract. So. That's right. So the numbers are so critical. Exactly. I've jumped and I've. I've bought sight property unseen, right? sight unseen. Yeah. Then I saw it, and then I eventually renovated it, and saw all the cockroaches, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that, that that was fun. So. <laughs> yeah, <that's cool. laughs> 
Oh, well, cool. Ace, again, thank you so much. No problem. And I'm um, looking pleasure. forward to seeing how the bank does. We're hoping we'll, we'll check back in seven years. We'll see if the IPO okay. happens. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we have a share. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thanks again, man. Appreciate Thanks. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. Thanks for tuning in to the Realized Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.